Well, thank you, Gleaves. Delighted to be back at Grand Valley. I'm delighted to see some familiar faces. When Gleaves asked me to think about a series of lectures I could give, I thought it was a terrific opportunity to distill some lessons I, that I think I've learned about the presidency and about presidents from my study of the presidency and from observing presidents. Now, the, the first president that I really remember was John Kennedy. I don't have any real recollections of Dwight Eisenhower, but I've been watching presidents since then, and I've compiled what I am immodestly calling sort of six lessons for presidents. So, now, a standard question that I ask of my students, just to gauge their interest level and try to engage their interest, but also to see, to get them thinking, is I typically ask my students, and these would be undergraduates who are anywhere from 18 to 22 years old, I ask them, how many of them think they would like to be president someday? And the students usually kind of look around the room a little bit nervously, and it's as though they're trying to decide whether, well, if they think they want to, should they raise their hand and will other people think that they're political geeks or think they're rather full of themselves or what? Um, and so out of a class, last time I did this, I was teaching a class last semester that had 300 students in it. And of that class of 300, probably not more than six or eight raised their hands. And when they did, the other, their fellow students sort of looked at them and chuckled and all this. I posed the question, though, it all depends on the group you ask. I posed the question because uh, last summer, I was lecturing to a group of, now I'm not sure how many of you know about Boys State and Girls State. These are the groups of uh, high school students that get together to sort of form uh, shadow governments, to, to act the way you would if they were in government. I put the question to them, and I'll bet 80% of them raised their hands. So it was a, a very self-selected group. But anyway, when I, I ask this question, I ask it because not necessarily I care one way or the other whether they want to be president, but we all have to think about the presidency. We're asked to think about it every four years. We've been asked to think about it a lot these last several months, and we will for the, the several months to come. And so I have come up with six lessons to keep in mind if you want to be president, but even if you don't want to be president. These are six ways of evaluating presidents, both in terms of their performance in office and viewing them after they leave office. And the first lesson, or the first way of gauging presidents, I'm going to talk about this morning, and I've called it the half-step rule with the minor explanation of timing, timing, timing. And it has to do with the fact that successful presidents are well-suited to their time in history. I'm very often asked, I've written about several presidents, I've written a number of biographies, I wrote about Benjamin Franklin, I wrote about Andrew Jackson, I wrote about Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt. I'm writing about Franklin Roosevelt. And a standard question that I'm asked is, well, what would Franklin Roosevelt do if he were president today? Or what would Andrew Jackson do in this circumstance or that circumstance? And I have to say that 
and I, I try to answer this question without insulting the questioner, but I usually have to say that that's not a very instructive question to ask because of the fact that successful presidents are successful precisely because they suit their times. At best, a president can provide presidential leadership by being a half step ahead of his time, or might be her time, in November. But anyway, you, can, you have to be very close to your audience. You have to be very close to the American people. If you're a full step ahead, then nobody pays any attention to you. We live in a democracy, and democracies work by mobilizing a connection between the leadership and the people being led. And if you get too far ahead of your times, then you have essentially no effect on your times. If you look at the successful presidents, you can see that they suited their times very well. Historians like me, political scientists like Gleaves and other people who've come to the, the Howenstein Center, typically look at presidents and they say that of all the presidents, of all the American presidents until now, there are three that stand out, the three that stand out above all the others. And this, I hesitate to use the term, this, this trinity of great American presidents by consensus are George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. And the order among the three sort of depends on your personal taste, whether you've got an affinity for the revolutionary era or you're a Civil War buff or you're more of a modernist. But the thing that makes these three presidents so successful, that made them so successful, makes their reputations stand up, is the fact that they were very well suited toward their times. And they very often would not do well at all if they were removed from their times. George Washington was the most aristocratic president by temperament, by style. George Washington did not run for office. George Washington barely deigned to stand for office. He believed that if the American people wanted him to serve them as his president, that would be fine. But he wasn't going to solicit their votes. He would have considered it demeaning. George Washington was an aloof personality. There's a story of George Washington at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. And he, was, he had the most outstanding reputation of those at the convention. And he was generally perceived to be the one who would lead the new government if, in fact, the convention created a new government. But he was also rather standoffish. Governor Moore, who was a delegate to the convention, who was very much more in the, the mold of the Hale fellow well met, made a bet with some of the other delegates that he could warm up George Washington. And so they said, I don't think he'd be able to do it. And so they bet a, a dinner at the, the most expensive restaurant in Philadelphia. And Governor Morris then said, okay, he took the challenge. And he went over and he slapped General Washington on the back and said, George, how's it going? And Washington fixed him with this icy stare and made him remove that hand from his shoulder. And he said, uh, and, and Morris 
He said he, he won the bet, because actually the bet simply was, would anybody dare to do this to Washington? But he said, you know, I've never paid more for winning a bet. <laughs> George Washington was elected by acclamation twice. But if he had come along 20 years later, 30 years later, he would have been entirely out of place. That's not the way a person could have behaved as soon as the 1820s and the 1830s. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, and here's another question that often comes up. People have their favorites among the presidents. People have historical figures that they really like. But typically, the historical figures have, oh, there's something we don't like about them. So Thomas Jefferson is a whole lot of people's favorite president. He was the closest thing we had to a philosopher president. He was this all-around person who was an architect. He was a scientist. He was probably the most gifted writer of all of the presidents. But there's this one flaw in Thomas Jefferson, and this is something that we really have a hard time getting around. And that is the fact that Thomas Jefferson was a big-time slaveholder. And so, you know, as much as we admire Thomas Jefferson, we have a hard time with the fact that he owned slaves. You know, he trafficked in human flesh and human destiny. And what are we going to do with this? And so there's this temptation to think, God, that Thomas Jefferson, he would have been a great president if he simply hadn't been a slave owner. You know, if he had had... Well, and one of the things about Thomas Jefferson is he knew it was wrong. You can read his letters, and he talks about how he shuddered when he realized that God is just, and there will be a reckoning regarding slavery. So we know he's wrong, but he can't get himself to abandon his slaves. We can't get himself to denounce the, the institution. But, and so we like to think that if he had just, if he'd just been a little bit different, then he would have been the perfect president. But the thing about Thomas Jefferson, if Th Thomas Jefferson was from Virginia, if you were from Virginia in 1800 and you wanted to be president, you had to own slaves. He, if he had not owned slaves, if he had not defended the institution of slavery, he never would have been president. If he had been farther along in, let's call it, the evolution of attitudes towards slavery, he wouldn't have been president and he wouldn't have had any influence on his times. And this is what I talk about where I say, the best, the farthest ahead of your times you can be and get away with it and have any effect in a democratic system is being to, have, to be half a step ahead. I wrote a book about Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is, well, Andrew Jackson is one of those interesting characters who was considered probably in his day and for half a century afterwards the greatest figure of his times. Andrew Jackson was often spoken of simply as the hero. He was the successor to George Washington. There are, I may have, if some of you heard me talk before, I may be repeating myself, so forgive me. But when I was working on Andrew Jackson, on the book about Andrew Jackson, I tried to come up with a gauge as to how popular Andrew Jackson was. I might point out, for those of you who recall your history, that of all of the commonly labeled eras of history, the Revolutionary, the Colonial Era, the Revolutionary Era, the Early National Period, the Civil War Era, Reconstruction, the Progressive Era, the New Deal, and so on, there's only one that's named for an individual, and that's the Jacksonian Era. He was so emblematic of his times 
that we've labeled the entire period from the 1820s to through the 1840s the Jacksonian era. And so when I was trying to figure out how popular Andrew Jackson was, I decided to come up with a rough and ready measure for how you, how you uh, evaluate historical reputations. And so I took out an atlas of the United States, and I flipped to the index at the back. And I looked at all the places that are named Jacksonville, Jackson Hole, Jackson County, Lake Jackson, and so on. And I added up all of the Jacksons, and then I went to see how that rated with other sort of same names. And in fact, there are more places named for Andrew Jackson than for anybody else, any other individual in American history. Do you know who the, the next, do you know who the second place is? In fact, it's just about a toss-up between Washington and Franklin. And uh, so anyway, Andrew Jackson, though, is no longer considered to be such an important figure as he once was. Well, I take it back. Not, I won't say, he's still considered by students of the presidency, historians, to be important, but he's not, he's not loved. And this is... This is something that's important to keep in mind as we go forward into the election. Because, I'll, I'm sure I will repeat myself more than once between now and, and Wednesday evening, but we choose our presidents. We vote for individual, for candidates for president for one set of reasons. And it has as much to do with how they make us feel emotionally as it does with their mastery of politics or policy or anything like that. And then they have to be president, and that requires a different set of skills. Well, anyway, historians still think that Andrew Jackson was an important figure, but it's really hard to find any historians who like Andrew Jackson. Because Andrew Jackson was wrong on some issues that we think we've become more enlightened about. In the first place, Andrew Jackson, like Thomas Jefferson, like every other Southerner elected to the presidency before Woodrow Wilson, and I'll have some things to say about Wilson on this score too, um, was a slave owner. And you know, we're an enlightened age, and we like to think that we're going to put some distance between ourselves and those people in the past who owned slaves. And so we can't really get very close emotionally to slave owners. So, that's one mark against it. He was a militant expansionist. Andrew Jackson, by force of arms, conquered Florida, essentially illegally conquered Florida, and was instrumental in bringing Texas into the United States. Texas, which of course separated itself from Mexico. So, Jackson expanded the American national domain by force of arms. And we like to think of ourselves as a peace-loving people, and we like to somehow imagine that this country spread from coast to coast by, I don't know, by accident or by divine fear. No, as a matter of fact, this is the way the country was built. It was built by military conquest. But we just as soon not be reminded of that. The real mark, the big thing that's held against Andrew Jackson was his Indian policy. And in fact, I often speak to groups of school teachers. And I'll speak to high school teachers and occasionally to elementary school teachers. I was speaking to a group of elementary school teachers in Illinois last summer. And I posed this question. I, I asked you to a lot of this, but I remember this particular group. And I said, um, well, what do you, or more precisely, what do your students know about Andrew Jackson? 
And the answer came back from several of the, the teachers there. These are elementary school teachers. And they gave me three words. And do you know what the three words were? Trail of Tears. Andrew Jackson's role in the forced removal of the Cherokees from Georgia. And so this is what people know about Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was, well, he's perceived to be anti-Indian. Now, I have to explain that Andrew Jackson wasn't anti-Indian. In fact, Andrew Jackson adopted a couple of Indian children as his own, Indian kids who lost their parents. And he raised them as his own. Andrew Jackson, however, did believe that it would be very difficult for Indians to live as tribes, as independent nations under their own laws, within the territory of American states. And in this regard, Jackson was simply acknowledging the reality of his times. Now, from a distance of 150 years, it's easy for us to say, and accurately so, that the Indians really got the raw end of the deal with, in their relations with the rest of the country. And this is certainly true enough. But what was the alternative? Andrew Jackson sketched out the alternative when the Cherokees wanted to stay in Georgia. He said, when the first English colonists arrived at the beginning of the 17th century, there were hundreds of tribes. There were tribes in New England, there were tribes in New York, there were tribes in Pennsylvania, there were tribes all up and down the East Coast. He said, where are they now? He was speaking in the 18, early 1830s. Where are they now? And the answer was, they've all disappeared. They've died of disease, they've been crushed in war, they've been driven from their homes. Where are they now? He told the Cherokees, and the other so-called, as they were called in those days, the five civilized tribes of the Southeast, if you want to maintain your identity as tribes, you're going to have to go where you're not going to be surrounded by white people. Jackson knew the folks who lived in Georgia because he'd grown up among them. And he knew that if the Cherokees stayed in Georgia, the Cherokees would go away, those hundreds of other tribes that had disappeared. If you could call it, if you want, a species of an early example of tough love. But Jackson recognized that if the Cherokees want to survive, they're going to have to move. In fact, the Cherokees did move. And it was a tragedy. It was a disgrace the way they were moved. They did move, however, and they are one of the most thriving today of the Native American nations. Now, the point of all of this is that we might wish, and when I was, when I was hoping for good sales to my Andrew Jackson book, I might have wished that Andrew Jackson hadn't been a slaveholder, that he hadn't been this militant expansionist, that he hadn't had such a harsh policy regarding the Indians. But in fact, if he hadn't had those policies, if he hadn't had those views, he would not have been president. He would not have had all those towns named and lakes and mountains named for him. The point here is that Jackson suited his times very well. Oh, wait a minute, there's more than that. Because you don't become a great president simply by suiting your times. This lecture is called the half-step rule, because I really do mean the half-step. You've got to be a half-step ahead. If you're behind, well, that doesn't get the country anywhere. And if, you're only, if you only reflect what people want at the time, that doesn't move the nation at all either. Jackson was important because Jackson embodied the advent of democracy, the idea that ordinary people could not only be represented, but could actually control the government. Jackson was 
the person who gave the presidency to the American people. And the presidency has never been the same since. George Washington was considered by most voters, in fact, most voters didn't get to vote for George Washington, it was only in the Jacksonian era, for the first time, that ordinary people, not all ordinary people by any means, women, for the most part, couldn't vote, African Americans couldn't vote, but for the first time, nearly all adult white males could vote. This is during the 1820s. And it's also for the first time that even those people who could vote got to vote for president. Well, strictly speaking, then as now, they voted for electors for president, but still they got to cast ballots. Before the 1820s, the electors were chosen not by voters, but by the state legislatures, for the most part. And you may remember that in the 2000 election, when the vote uh, got counted and miscounted and recounted and everything else in Florida, remember there was a brief moment when the Florida legislature toyed with the idea of stepping in and deciding itself how the electors were going to be awarded. And you may or may not realize that that would have been perfectly constitutional. Do you know? that you have no constitutional right to vote for president. You don't even have a constitutional right to vote for the electors for president. All that the Constitution says, is you know what it says? It says the states shall choose electors, and it's up to the states to determine how those electors are going to be chosen. And if Michigan, if the Michigan legislature wanted tomorrow, or whenever they're going to meet, and if they decided to do this, they could say, you know what? This business of voting for president. It's a waste of time, a waste of money. You know, can't even decide whether you have another primary, but you know, <laughs> we don't need the general election. Think of all the money we'd save. And so the legislature would just decide, we're going to choose the electors. And it would be perfectly constitutional. Now, it might be unpopular, and you couldn't get away with it. Why couldn't you get away with it? Because Andrew Jackson made the presidency peculiarly the office of the American people. In fact, it, it would be utterly politically impossible for any state to do that. This is why Florida backed off. And it realized this would never fly. Constitutionally, yes, but politically, no. Okay. Now, other presidents have exemplified this tendency of leadership sometimes to get too far ahead, sometimes to lag behind, but the most successful presidents to be sort of right where they're supposed to be. Do you know who... Well, here's something that kind of poses a question. Until 1860, Southerners dominated the presidency. There was that period of what was called the Virginia Dynasty, where every president had been a Virginian. And then you throw in people like Tennesseans, like Jackson and Polk. Until 1860, Southerners dominated the presidency. And then, and then from the Civil War, until, you know, when the next Southern president was elected? Well, it depends on whether we're going to count Wilson as a Southern. Lyndon Johnson was the first to be elected, then living in the South. Woodrow Wilson had been born in Virginia, was raised in Georgia, but then moved as an adult to the North. And he spent most of his adulthood in the North, in New Jersey. Now, do you know why? there was this effective embargo on Southern presidents. And Wilson only broke the embargo by virtue of, first of all, having been an adopted Northerner. So most of the Southern 
southernness of Wilson had been rubbed off by spending a couple of decades in Princeton, New Jersey. But the other thing, the other thing that made it work was that the Republican Party split in 1912. And so it opened the door for almost anybody the Democrats would nominate. Why this embargo on Southerners? And Lyndon Johnson, whom I'll get to, was a very good example of how it worked in practice. Why no Southerners for a century? Yes, they lost the Civil War, but it was more than that, because you could argue that the Democratic Party lost the Civil War, too. But the Democrats made a comeback, and the Democrats were a competitive party again by the 1880s. But Southerners couldn't get elected presidents. Democrats, of course, could dominate congressional committees, and in fact, it was one of the peculiarities of national politics that Southern Democrats who just got elected and elected and elected, and with the seniority, they rose through the ranks of the legislature, and they became the chairman of the most influential committees in Congress. No Southern presence, because of the peculiar politics of nominating and then electing presidents. Now, we're recapitulating, we're seeing again, the peculiar politics of nominating candidates for president. But the way it worked in the South, well, here's the way it works. If you want to become considered viable for president, you have to have a local base. You can't run for president as a national candidate. Uh, there are, there's one category of exceptions to this rule, and that is military heroes. So do you know where Dwight Eisenhower was from? Uh, yeah, although Texans sometimes claim him. He was born in North Texas, but his father moved to Kansas very shortly after he was born. And so Texas can claim him when Texas wants to, and then they'll just shove him off on Kansas when the Texans don't want to. Actually, I have a student who is uh, who's the grandson of uh, a Texas governor, and he's working on a dissertation on what he's calling the Texas Troika of the 1950s. And this was, and he's decided to readopt Dwight Eisenhower, but he's looking at the relationship between Eisenhower as president, Lyndon Johnson as Senate Majority Leader, and Sam Rayburn, also of Texas, as the Speaker of the House. And it was a remarkable moment in, well, you could call it the pre-modern history of the South, it was also emblematic of how political power in the South worked. And I'll get to that. But the reason for the embargo was this. If you wanted to become a political player, you had to start at the local level. You had to rise through the ranks of state politics. This was the era of the Jim Crow system of white supremacy in the South. And in many Southern states during the Reconstruction era and for a while after, and again during the 1910s and 20s, the Ku Klux Klan was strong in the South. In order to become a viable state candidate, you had to cultivate or at least learn to get along with the white supremacists who controlled state politics in every southern state. You had to warm up to the good old boys who believed that Whites ought to run the country. And this was okay in the context of Southern politics. But once you aspired to the presidency, then you were tainted 
with your white supremacist background. And so Southerners could rise to the top of the House, as Sam Rayburn did, to the top of the Senate, as Lyndon Johnson did, but they hit the ceiling at that point. They simply could not get elected president because voters outside the South would not, because one of the things I said, and I'll repeat it again, and that is that the presidency is the, the national office that peculiarly belongs to the people of the United States. And one of the principal reasons we vote for the people we vote for is that they represent something that we admire about the country, we admire about ourselves. I would argue that if you had to come up with a single reason why presidents get elected, candidates get elected president, is that they make voters feel good about themselves and about their country. Now, the feel good could either be looking backwards when you choose a war hero. It could be looking forward when Ronald Reagan, for example, was able to project forward from past the era of Vietnam and Watergate. And talk, he would talk about it's morning again in America. Looking forward, and, and the future is going to be better. And if you can do that, then you can get people to vote for you. But boy, for a Southerner who is tainted with this Jim Crow legacy to try to get voters to vote for him, it just, voters outside the, the South, it didn't fly at all. Woodrow Wilson became president in 1913. And Woodrow Wilson proceeded to, well, this is one where it, you, you see the interplay between presidents as leaders and presidents as simply presiding over the executive branch. It was under Woodrow Wilson that the federal workforce became segregated. The, the post office became segregated, other branches, other aspects of the, the executive branch became segregated. And it was largely at the behest of some of the Southerners in Wilson's cabinet. Wilson went along with it. And this was an example of, well, what a lot of people thought as kind of retrograde motion in politics. Because there was this tendency, this hope to think that, well, the Civil War is over and aren't we moving forward on racial issues? And under Wilson, it seemed as though, no, we're moving backwards on racial issues. But in one sense, there was this backward motion in another sense, you could argue, though, that it was the beginning of kind of the nationalization of race policy. And in this regard, maybe it was one of those necessary steps forward. I wrote a book on the California gold rush. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover, I hadn't realized this, because I hadn't really thought about how you traveled from the eastern United States to California in 1849. Well, the way you did it was to go through Missouri. And typically the jumping off point for the Overland Trail was Independence, Missouri, St. Joseph, Missouri, Council Bluff, one of the, the, the communities on the western edge of Missouri. Well, now, those of you who recall your history will remember that because of the Missouri Compromise, the state of Missouri was a slave state. And so what this meant was that to get from New York, a free state, to California, a free state, it's going to be a free state after 1850, to get from the north to the west, you had to travel through the south. Okay. Now, 
that might seem like it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too much when it came to the question of slavery. This is important because for the first time, Northerners who never would have traveled to the South, most people who lived in New York had no reason to travel to the South. They never would have seen the slave system in action. But because they want, and they were going to California. They didn't intend to go to the South. They wanted to go to California and dig gold. But to get to California, they had to go through a slave state. And they saw for the first time in the slave market, St. Louis, for example, the way the slave system operated. And this had a galvanizing effect on the abolitionist movement. It was only when this issue, when this institution became real, that people were really able to envision it and to mobilize against it. So anyway, it was this kind of odd quirk of history that the slave question became nationalized. And once it became nationalized, then it was possible to mobilize national opinion against it. It was when the Jim Crow system became nationalized in the federal government under Wilson that a greater groundswell of opposition arose against it. As long as segregation was a southern issue, then people in Massachusetts could just go to bed at night with clear consciences. Well, not my problem. They didn't have to look at it. They didn't have to deal with it. Franklin Roosevelt, whom I have particular interest in these days, was one who also understood that you could get a little bit ahead of the American people on certain issues, but you couldn't get very much farther ahead, because if you did, you would lose them. And when I look at Franklin Roosevelt, I'm spending a lot of time in my book on Franklin Roosevelt dealing with Eleanor Roosevelt, because Eleanor Roosevelt was, yeah, it's fair to say, even, even including Clinton, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton in the White House and Hillary as first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt was the most powerful first lady in American history. She was the first American first lady to have any kind of independent views of politics and any independent venue. She wrote a six-day-a-week newspaper column. She had a weekly radio show. And she often spoke on topics and espoused positions at variance with those of her husband. And this is one of the reasons that she was considered with such respect by women and men too, during your time, and has been viewed as really sort of the first, the first feminist in the White House. She wasn't president, but she lived in the White House. And and Frank, excuse me, Eleanor Roosevelt was something of Franklin Roosevelt's conscience on civil rights, and she was constantly pushing Franklin Roosevelt to do more for civil rights, to get behind, for example a resolution introduced in Congress to create a federal anti-lynch law. Lynching remained a serious problem through the American South. And the laws in the South weren't sufficient to deal with it. I was just on a panel a couple of days ago at the Texas State Historical Association. And the panel dealt with the legal system in Texas in the 1880s and 1890s and the legal system in the United States in the 1880s, 1880s and 90s. And there was a political scientist who was talking about the U.S. Supreme Court during the 1880s and 90s, and a historian from the University of Texas who was talking about the Texas Supreme Court during the 80s and 90s. And it was interesting to see the much larger importance of the populist movement on 
Texas law and Texas constitutionalism than the influence of populism on U.S. law and constitution. Because in, actually, the populist movement had zero effect, at least observable effect, on U.S. law. And so the question arose, why were the populists so much more effective in changing the law and the interpretation of the Constitution in Texas than they were regarding federal law? Any guesses? Any thoughts? Now, I confess that I don't... And there's a, the answer to the question hinges on how you choose judges. And I don't know how judges in Michigan are chosen. Are they appointed, elected? Elected. Elected, okay. Well, then you might know the answer. So what's the answer? Why is... The Texas Supreme Court more responsive to the popular will than the U.S. Supreme Court. Because the judges are elected and they listen to what voters are saying because they know that if they get very far out of step, they won't be returned to office. Now, does it happen in Michigan the way it typically happens in Texas? At least it did for a long time. Recently it's changed a little bit. In that the justices of the Texas Supreme Court were typically appointed originally because there was this custom that if somebody wanted to retire, resign from the court, they would do so before the end of the term. And this would give the governor the courtesy, the opportunity to appoint the successor. But then that successor had to run, stand for election the next time around. They, had, they would have the advantage of incumbency, but they still have to get elected. So it diluted the effect of the voting a little bit. Anyway, what this meant in Texas was that Populist interpretations of railroad regulation worked out through the Texas Supreme Court, but not through the U.S. Supreme Court. But what it also meant was that on issues like lynching, it was impossible to convict anybody, any white person, of lynching a black man in Texas or in any other southern state because the judges, the juries, were all whites and were typically sympathetic to those people doing the lynching. And this was why there was demand for a federal law because if you could get it in the federal court system, then the judges were appointed. They didn't have to run for election. It didn't make any difference if they were unpopular or not. And this was why, for example, that federal civil rights legislation of the 1960s federalized a lot of these offenses, precisely to take it out of the state court system and put it into the federal court system, where the federal courts, where the federal judges, can be very unpopular and still do their job. In fact, one would argue that on certain issues, if you're not unpopular as a judge, you're not doing your job. Anyway, Franklin Roosevelt refused to go, refused to sign on to the anti-lynching legislation. He refused to get out front on civil rights, despite the pleas, more than pleas, despite the demands of Eleanor that he do something about it. And what he said went now. With Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, they managed to play this sort of good cop, bad cop routine very well. Because Franklin Roosevelt could say to his conservative allies in Congress, and Franklin Roosevelt, he was a Democratic president, and he presided over Democratic, a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, which meant that the chairman of all the influential committees in the House and Senate were Democrats, but this meant that these were the senior Democrats. And the seniors in the Democratic Party were Southerners from start to finish. And so every important committee in the Senate that was going to consider New Deal legislation on any matter related to civil rights or not related to civil rights was going to be controlled by a Southerner. And Franklin Roosevelt knew 
that if he made a strong plea, if he really pushed for civil rights legislation, then he would lose those Southerners who controlled the committees and none of his New Deal measures would get passed. And he made a calculated decision. He said, look, you know, I can do more for the people of this country if I lay off of civil rights and concentrate on economic rights. If I concentrate on the programs for the New Deal that benefit people all around the country, the time will come when civil rights legislation will be possible. But it's not possible yet. So he told Eleanor, just cool things off and first things first, which was his approach to civil rights. And in fact, when Harry Truman is and now Truman is an interesting case because Truman was a border stater and Truman was from Missouri. Truman supported civil rights. But Truman also experienced how difficult it was to move the country on civil rights. Truman, interestingly, was the most Southern president since Woodrow Wilson. Missouri's not exactly South, but it had been a slave state, and so Truman knew about the legacy of slavery in Missouri. But Truman also was a, simply a liberal, and Truman believed that the country needed to move forward on civil rights. Ah, and there's another element that comes to play here, and again, it gets to this question of timing. Until 1945, race relations in the United States were not an international concern. Nobody really cared much in India what the policy of the United States regarding race was. And more importantly, nobody in the United States cared what India thought about America's race relations. Because the United States simply was not thinking in international terms. But the Second World War awakened all sorts of people to the necessity for having world opinion on America's side. And Harry Truman looked out and he realized that the world was changing, that India was becoming independent, that several countries, well, former colonies of Africa and Southeast Asia were becoming independent. They were joining the international community as full partners. And they were sending representatives to the United States. They were sending representatives to the capital of the United States. And as long as they were in D.C., which had abolished the Jim Crow system, they could stay in hotels. But if they wanted to cross the river into Virginia, um, the ambassador from India couldn't stay in a decent hotel in Virginia. This at a time when the United States was struggling to win the allegiance of these newly independent nations. And Truman recognized this as a serious problem. He also recognized that he didn't have the votes in Congress to change the position of the country on civil rights. So what did he do? He did what presidents can do on their own. He issued an executive order mandating the desegregation of the federal workforce and of the military. And the military was the real sticking point. The military, and the military, interestingly enough, is often this mirror on American society. And I don't know how close, I know some of you are close to academic history. Uh, Bleeds is certainly aware of this, that military history, for a variety of reasons, has fallen out of fashion in the academic world. 
And I think it's a shame. I think it's more than a shame. I think it's a scandal. In, in part because wars happen. Whether you like them or not, you have to deal with them. But also because military historians deal with many of the critical issues that societies confront. And we often see that the U.S. military is both a window on the larger society, but sometimes a leading indicator on where society is going. Harry Truman recognized that as president, he could order the military to desegregate. He couldn't tell, he couldn't order Mississippi to desegregate, but he could order the U.S. military to desegregate. Ah, but he discovered it's one thing to give an order and another thing to get the order carried out. Because the attitude of many elements of the federal bureaucracy is that presidents come and go, but the bureaucrats remain. And generals and admirals are soldiers and sailors, but they're also, at the higher levels, bureaucrats. And the attitude, well, actually, the Navy went along reasonably well and quickly with Truman's order. In the Air Force, that wasn't a particular problem either, but the Army dragged its boot heels. And two years later, when the Korean War broke out, Truman gave his order in 1948. Two years later, when the Korean War broke out, the U.S. Army was just as segregated as ever. And the argument was, if you've been paying attention, well, if you remember back to the 1990s and the question of gays in the military, and you remember this compromise solution of don't ask, don't tell. And you will recall that much of the debate centered on the fighting cohesiveness of the units. Well, that was exactly, exactly the argument that was made in the late 1940s, early 1950s. You know, soldiers, when they go off to battle, they fight for their country. But at a more immediate level, they fight for their buddies. They fight for the other people in their unit. And if they don't like each other, then they're not going to fight very well. Well, this was the argument that the Army used to resist Truman's order. Oh, we'll study it. I mean, they never said no. You don't say no to the commander-in-chief. You just sort of salute, and then you go off and do whatever you're going to do. And so two years had passed, two and a half years had passed, and nothing had happened. But then, under the duress of war, when the U.S. Army was stretched to the breaking point, under the pressure of the war in Korea and the demands of the Cold War in Europe, and various units in the Army found that they needed replacements wherever they could find warm bodies, and they just plugged them in. And under this pressure, they desegregated the Army. And to the, I will say, the honest surprise of many of the commanders, these integrated units fought just as well as the segregated units had before. And by 1952 or 1953, it was almost as though they'd forgotten there had ever been an issue. I'm just about running out of time, but I can't close without talking about Lyndon Johnson and the central issue of timing and the issue of, and this recurs, again and again in presidential history, the role of luck. And you can call it good luck, you can call it bad luck, but twists of fate mean everything in determining who's going to be president and how the country is going to be governed. Lyndon Johnson dearly wanted to be president of the United States. Lee and I were talking about this before we came downstairs this morning. This of what it is emotion that motivates people and why do people want to become president. And I've sometimes said, sort of half flippantly, that 
the decision to run for president, well, actually, this is apropos what we were talking about, that a number of presidents that we can identify, and we didn't run through the whole list, but if you look at people like Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln was, in his day, he was described as melancholic. These days, we would do, he would be described clinically as deeply depressed. And you see this depressive streak in Theodore Roosevelt. You can see it in Franklin Roosevelt, although both Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt managed to sort of overcompensate. And I think this is one of the secrets of their success. Richard Nixon was described as being very depressed, certainly in the water. You didn't hear you, you wonder if there's kind of constitutional depression or a situational depression. In his case, you know, the world caving in on him, he probably had reason to be depressed. But anyway, I sometimes say that it's these unbalanced people who become president, who become the greatest president. And I, I sometimes go on to say, when I'm talking about, do you want to be president? Because usually after I, I ask this question, okay, do you want, who wants to be president? A few people raise their hand and say, well, I got to tell you that in my study of the presidency, I've determined that the decision to announce your candidacy for presidency is prima facie evidence that you are neurotic or otherwise unbalanced in some way or other. Because, if you think about it for a minute, you know, being president of the United States is perhaps the most daunting task that one can imagine. And there is no one who is really qualified for the job. If you consider everything that's necessary to master in terms of national politics, in terms of the effect of policies on individuals, in terms of the rhetorical skills you require, the ability to persuade people, not to mention all the stuff you're supposed to know about foreign leaders and foreign governments and all that. Are any of you uh, viewers of Saturday Night Live? Okay, well, there was a skit uh, last week. I think it was last week, or maybe it was the week before, when it was, it was making fun of the apparent, at least apparent to the writers of Saturday Night Live, bias in the national media between the two Democratic finalists. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And to show how, how this played out, there was this skit where there's Senator Clinton and Senator Obama. And uh, somebody who's playing Tim Russell is asking questions. And so he says, uh, Senator Clinton, uh, being commander-in-chief as you want to be is one of the most challenging tasks that confront, can confront any political leader. And a mastery of world affairs is probably very important. So I think you'll concede that these questions that I'm going to ask to you, to both of the candidates, are fair enough. Senator Clinton, can you tell me who the Assistant Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs of Pakistan is? <laughs> and Senator says, well, uh, no, 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 Tim, I can't. Well, the Assistant Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs of Pakistan is da 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 Senator Obama, can you tell me who the Assistant Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs for Pakistan is? <laughs> Why, yes, Tim, it's da 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 three or four times. <laughs> anyway, everybody got a good laugh. But the point is that being president is, re requires a set of skills, requires a kind of preparation that nobody really has. And you hope for the best. And, and I tell my students, on the basis of what I've observed in, among people who run for president, and Gleese was commenting this uh, in his experience of Michigan politics, that the question isn't, are you prepared to be president? Are you going to be the best president one can imagine? It's not as though 
will you be the perfect president? The question always comes down to, will you be a better president than those other people who are running? And this is why as soon as somebody announces, then other people start announcing and say, well, phew, I'm better than that guy. <laughs> and so this is the comparison you make, and this is why people run for president. Because if you had to be the first one to announce, then you really must think a lot of yourself. But if once somebody else is announced, then, well, okay, most people, most ambitious people in politics can persuade themselves, well, I'm better than that person, whoever that person might be. Anyway, Lyndon Johnson was convinced that he was the best qualified person in the United States to be president. And he had these towering ambitions. So towering that's taken Robert Caro. You've had Caro here, right? He's been working on Lyndon Johnson, trying to unravel, unfathom, fathom Lyndon Johnson's psyche for now 25, I don't know, 25 years or so he's been working on it. Anyway, Johnson wanted to be president, but he also understood that there was this implicit embargo against Southerners as president. So what's he going to do? Well, he did a couple of things. One thing that he did, he started early on in recognizing the fact that Texas is a southern state, but it's also a western state. And in fact, I live in Texas, right on the border between Texas as south and Texas as west. I live in Austin. Austin is on Interstate 35. Interstate 35 is the particularly the dividing line between Texas as south and Texas as west. And the way you can tell this, there are a variety of ways. One is that there are these rural roads in Texas. And east of I-35, the rural roads are all, all called farm-to-market roads. So it's FM 1341. West of I-35, same roads, they're all called ranch-to-market roads. You can also tell the split between, as if you go from Laredo in the south on 35, up north, I-35 splits between just uh, about 30 miles north of Waco. And it splits into I-35E, the eastern branch, and I-35W, the western branch. The E branch goes to Dallas. The western branch goes to Fort Worth. Dallas is a city that was built on cotton. There is that annual bowl game that's played in Dallas. You know what it's called? The Cotton Bowl. Fort Worth was built on cattle. In fact, Dallasites often call Fort Worth Cowtown as a pejorative. But you can see the distinction. Lyndon Johnson made a great deal of the distinction in his famous election campaign of 1948. Oh, this is also a reminder. In the South, between 1860 and 1876, Reconstruction, the end of Reconstruction, and the 1960s, the important, you know what the important elections in the South were? They were always the Democratic primary elections. The Republican primary elections weren't important at all because the Republicans never won anything. And the general elections weren't important either because the Republicans never won anything. And so it was the Democratic primary that counted. Lyndon Johnson was campaigning for the Democratic nomination for the Senate in 1948. And he hired a helicopter to carry him around the state. Now this was in part because Texas is a big state and if you want to cover the whole state, you got to get around fast. But also because very few people in Texas had ever seen a helicopter. And when Johnson's 
tornado, it was called, would come around, people would go just to see the helicopter. <laughs> and Johnson had this trick that when the helicopter was preparing to land, he would have the helicopter circle a few times over the town square. And in small towns in Texas, how many, I don't know if you have this off the top of your head, how many counties are there in Michigan? Anybody know? 83. 83, okay. Texas has an inordinate number of counties. There are 254 counties in Texas. And every county, well, nearly every county, has its county courthouse. In fact, and the county courthouses sit on the square in the middle of the county seat. And so Johnson would visit, I don't know, he didn't visit them all, but he visited lots of them. And his helicopter would circle around the town square. But before the helicopter landed, Johnson would throw his hat out the open window of the helicopter. And it was a particular kind of hat, because Johnson was trying to make a point. It was a Stetson. The Stetson is the classic cowboy hat of the West. Now, it wasn't really a cowboy hat. Stetson has these, they're much more sort of citified versions, but it's still a Western hat. This is what the rancher wears when he goes to town. And Johnson wanted to make sure everybody saw this hat. Whenever he was photographed, Johnson was aware of where the cameras were, and whenever the cameras were on, he had his hat in hand or on his head because he wanted to make clear that he was one of those Texans from the West. Oh, um, there's a kid who got his start in Texas politics. Well, he's a young man at that point. Uh, Jake Pickle was his name. He was on uh, Johnson's staff. And his job was to go around and fetch the hat because this was an expensive hat. And Pickle knew that if he didn't get the hat, he would lose his job. And Jake Pickle went on to claim Johnson's congressional seat. This was the old 10th district in Texas. Johnson had been congressman there, and Jake Pickle was congressman for years and years. And the Republicans, though, finally had their revenge when they gerrymandered the 10th district out of existence. So anyway, Johnson was making himself out to be a man of the West. He rose through the ranks in the Senate. Oh, by the way, this is the primary election that he won by 87 votes. And he acquired the sardonic nickname Landslide Linden because it's pretty clear that a lot of those votes were stolen. Some of the, the votes from South Texas. Uh, all the voters signed in with the same handwriting. <laughs> anyway, Johnson won and became Senate Majority Leader. And he began to figure out how he could break through the glass ceiling because he knew all about this embargo on Southerners to be president. He, first of all, forged a very effective alliance with Dwight Eisenhower. And Johnson, Rayburn, and Eisenhower, among the three of them, essentially dictated most legislation during the 1950s, and this is why the student of mine is going to work on this subject. But Johnson wanted to be president. He didn't want to be second fiddle, he wanted to be president. He tried to figure out how he could do this. So in 1957, he sponsored the first federal civil rights bill since Reconstruction. It was a bill that had almost no teeth and almost nobody paid attention to it, but it had Johnson's name on it and allowed Johnson to establish his bona fides as a supporter of civil rights and therefore not one of these bad old segregations. But that wasn't quite enough. And when Johnson ran for president in 1960, he was up against... Do I have time to tell this story? Oh, sure. do I? Okay. There's a story that's told of Lyndon Johnson in the 1960 campaign that sort of captures... Well, it captures the time, mostly it captures Lyndon Johnson's ego. And the story goes something like this. There were three leading candidates for the Democratic nomination in 1960. One was Lyndon Johnson, senator from Texas. 
Another was John Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts. And the third was Stuart Symington, senator from Missouri. And as the story goes, the three of them were waiting off stage for one of the debates like those that we have seen 25 times or so this season. And while they're waiting, the crowd's coming in, and they're just making small talk among themselves. They've known each other. And Kennedy, John Kennedy, who was the youngest and the least distinguished of the three, turned to Johnson and Symington and said, Lyndon, Stu, I got to tell you about a remarkable dream that I had last night. And, uh, and in this dream, God, God reached down from heaven and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, Jack, you're my boy. You're going to win the nomination. You're going to be the next president of the United States. So, what do you think of that? And Symington looked at Kennedy, looked at Johnson, said, that really is a remarkable dream. That's it's very strange because you know what? I had a dream last night. In my dream, God reached down from heaven and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, Stu, you're the one. America needs you. America wants you. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <coughs> and Lyndon Johnson stroked that long chin of his, shook his head, big ears, laughed a little bit. And he said, I just don't know what to say. That is the strangest thing. Both of those dreams are very strange. Because you know... I had a dream last night. And in my dream, I don't remember tapping either one of you. <laughs> anyway, Johnson lost the nomination to Jack Kennedy. Now, Kennedy, ah, and this is where we might be thinking in terms of who are the vice presidential nominees going to be this year? And what sort of considerations will come into play? John Kennedy decided that he needed the support of Lyndon Johnson. He needed Texas. And Texas was a bit of a question mark because we historians often talk in shorthand of the old solid South, the solidly democratic South. But the solid South had begun to fray as early as the 1940s. And in 1952, and again in 1956, Texas voted for the Republican nominee, White Eisenhower. So Kennedy knew that he didn't have a chance of winning unless he could hold Texas. And he figured if he could hold Texas, he could bring along some of the southern states. He needed that southern vote. And this was a real question mark because Kennedy was the classic northern liberal and a Catholic to boot. And anti-Catholicism had doomed the candidacy of Al Smith, especially in the South, in 1928. And so Kennedy knew that he needed Johnson's support. So he asked Johnson to be his vice presidential candidate, his running mate, fully anticipating and probably hoping that Johnson would say no. Because Johnson was far senior to Kennedy in accomplishment, in rank in the Senate, and almost certainly 
in self-estimation. But Kennedy figured that he would get credit for giving the invitation. It's sort of like inviting somebody to do something when you know they can't, or you hope they won't, but at least you'll get credit for the invitation. Well, this is what Kennedy hoped to get. He would ask Johnson, Johnson would make a quick calculation and realize, boy, I'd much rather be Senate majority, that's a much more powerful position than being, what, president of the Senate, doesn't do anything, and be vice president of the United States, um, where you just sort of go to foreign funerals. Um, to Kennedy's amazement, Johnson said yes. Now this reflects, see, if when you think back through the logic, it makes perfect sense for Johnson to say yes. But that's but Kennedy didn't realize it because Kennedy wasn't a student of the presidency. Because if you had known what Lyndon Johnson knew about the presidency and how Southerners had been effectively barred from the presidency for a hundred years, and if now Kennedy did know this, if you knew how dearly Lyndon Johnson wanted to be president, you would have realized that the vice presidency was the perfect next step for Johnson. Because as long as he was senator from Texas, then that Southern label, that Southern stigma would still attach to him. But when he became vice president of the United States, all of a sudden, that's a national office. And he could kind of rub that Southern emphasis off him the way Woodrow Wilson did by moving to New Jersey. So, it really made sense. Because Johnson could figure, all right, Kennedy's a president for one term, two terms, then I become heir apparent. And I've had this experience that I can cite, but mostly I've risen in stature above my southern roots. Now, of course, Kennedy didn't fill out his first term. And when Johnson became president upon Kennedy's assassination, all of a sudden, that embargo... Oh, wait, no. The embargo wasn't broken yet. Because, and this is why timing really is everything. The, the embargo on Southern presidents, the, the, the fact that it was caused by the Jim Crow system in the South, had put the South and the nation in what you could almost call the perfect catch-22 system. You know, the old catch-22 where you, you can't solve the problem until the problem is already solved. The United States couldn't elect a Southern president until the South abandoned its Jim Crow system. Because, for the reasons that I said, any Southern politician would have to hand out too many IOUs to the, the white supremacists in the South and could never be a viable national candidate. But the Jim Crow system in the South could never be dismantled until there was a Southern president. Now, in fact, we can see this in the case of Kennedy and Johnson. Kennedy belatedly introduced or sponsored legislation on civil rights. This was in the autumn of 1963. And the legislation went nowhere. Why? Because those Southerners in the Senate would not be lectured to on the subject of civil rights by some damn name, by some northern liberal. You know, they're not going to take lessons on how to run the affairs of the South from John Kennedy. Who the hell does John Kennedy think he is? He may be president of the United States, but that's not good enough for us. A Southern president, however, could persuade those Southerners to get with the program, get into the 20th century, sort of like 
Richard Nixon having to be the one to go to China. You will listen to advice probably by somebody from somebody who's on the inside. You won't take advice from somebody on the outside. It's very much how it works in families. Now, families can say honest, frank, even nasty things about one another. If somebody from the outside starts to criticize the family, then the family closes ranks. So Johnson could, as a Southerner, now see, this is interesting, because for all that time while Johnson was trying to get to be president, he wanted to downplay the Southern roots. He wanted to act as though he was a Westerner. And now, though, as president, when he's trying to get the South to, to change its system, all of a sudden he starts to sound more Southern. And... This is where there was, some of you may have heard this or encountered it, but in an earlier generation, there was a pronunciation in the South of the word Negro that came out like Negra and just was right on that border between Negro and Nigger. And if you said it just right, it could be interpreted whichever way suited your purposes. And Johnson mastered this. So when he was talking to the white supremacists, it came out sounding the way you would imagine. When he was talking to another audience, it came out sounding like Negro, which was acceptable. And, and this is emblematic of Johnson's ability to play the Southern card as well as to play the National card. Because what Johnson needed to do to the South was convince the South to enter the rest of the country, to get along with the rest of the country. Johnson's experience in the Senate was absolutely crucial here because he needed to get the support of the Senate minority leader, Everett Dirksen of Illinois. And Dirksen was a conservative Republican from Illinois, which certainly downstate Illinois, has a long history of being almost as Southern as much of the South. But Johnson... Johnson was a master of what came to be called the Johnson Treatment. And this was Johnson working one-on-one -on -one against various legislators. And I really should stop and, and save this for a subsequent lecture, but I, since I've mentioned the Johnson Treatment, I'll just tell you how it worked. Lyndon Johnson was a big guy. He was about 6'4". He was really rangy. He had long arms, his big head, big nose, big ears. And... He used to physically overpower people. He would invite them into the White House, to the Oval Office, which was intimidating enough as it was. And then he'd be kind of lounging behind his chair. He often would slump way down low in his chair, but when he really wanted to make a point, he'd rise up out of that chair. And just for an ordinary size legislature, then he'd come in and sort of stand over <laughs> and then, And there were two versions of Johnson treatment. There was the half Johnson, and the full Johnson. <laughs> the half Johnson. He put one arm around the poor legislator. And he would start thumping him on the chest with the index finger of his free arm. And you watch the, the old TV show Seinfeld. There was an episode, a famous episode there on the, uh, the close talker. Yeah. You know about the close talker, the guy who talks too close? You know, we all have this certain sense of, of what our physical space should be. Well, the close talker would just invade that space. That's what Johnson would do. And you'd want to get away. Except Johnson would have his arm around you. And if the half Johnson didn't work, then you'd go to the full Johnson. This is both arms around you. And he's leaning down on you like this. And when Johnson got excited, spittle. 
fly out of his mouth. And these poor imprisoned legislators, they would do anything to get out of his grasp. One more instance, then I will stop. Jack Valenti, who was a junior staffer in the Johnson administration, was invited to join the administration. Johnson wanted him to take on, so I can't remember what particularly difficult this tasteful task was. And so he invited Valenti down to the ranch, Johnson's ranch in Texas, the Texas Hill Country. And whether Johnson did this by design or it just sort of came instinctively to him is hard to say. Because with really natural politicians, the, the dividing line between what they're calculating and doing and what comes naturally is, is almost impossible to determine. Anyway, um, Johnson uh, invites Valenti into the swimming pool. Now, Johnson had this habit of inviting people to go swimming. And they would say, well, sorry, I didn't bring a swimsuit. And Johnson would go, don't worry, we're going to wear swimsuits around here. Uh, in this case, though, he said, no, okay, uh, we've got a swimsuit for you. So, Valenti got in the pool. Johnson, I'd say he's a tall guy, Valenti's fairly short. Valenti is, I don't know, 5'8", something like that. And Johnson positioned himself in the swimming pool, in that place between the shallow end and the deep end, where he could stand with his feet on the bottom of the pool, but where Valenti had to tread water. <laughs> and so Johnson kept telling him how important this was and how his country needed him and how he just wouldn't let him away from there until he said yes. And what it meant for Valenti was <laughs> he was going to drown unless he said yes. And sure enough, he said yes. Anyway, the moral of the story is, if you're going to be a successful president, you have to have this sense of time. You have to know what's possible, not what's possible in the abstract, what's possible in the ideal world, but what's possible in the here and now, as you know. Health care reform is a big issue, at least on the Democratic side. And even John McCain is talking about health care reform. As you all know as well, Hillary Clinton proposed the head of a committee to try to propose health care reform in 1993. Health care reform in 1993 was an idea whose time had not yet come. We will find out, perhaps, next year whether the time has come. Will the difference be in the candidates? No, probably not. The difference will be in the electorate as a whole. So perhaps Hillary Clinton, if I'm going to focus on her, was maybe a whole step, and Bill Clinton were a whole step ahead of the country on health care reform in 1993. If they're going to be successful this time around, then whoever it happens to be might be a half step. Is that, does that mean that the candidate has taken a step back? No, it means that the country has taken a half, a half step forward, which is exactly the distance you want between the leaders and the followers. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to answer any questions. If you yes, sir. I'm uh, curious about the Electoral College, which you mentioned because uh, it seems to have a great influence on first who thinks they can run and succeed. Secondly, where they campaign, some states would never see a, a candidate if we did away with the electoral system. Uh, we had, in 2000, of course, a very dramatic example of people really getting excited about that. But then 9-11 came and they forgot about it again. Uh, can you imagine any kind of earth-shaking event it would cause us to seriously confront the electoral college system. For years, for 20 years, I started teaching in the late 1970s. And from the late 1970s until 2000, 
I used to talk to my students about how the Electoral College originated. And isn't it this quaint vestige of an earlier time? In fact, you know, the, the story you know, is that the, that the framers of the Constitution were sufficiently distrustful of the electorate that they, did, they wanted the president to represent the country as a whole but not be voted on by the country as a whole. And that's why the Electoral College was established. And the Electoral College was originally supposed to have independent views. Very much, I mean, it's on the order of senators and representatives. And so they would choose whoever they want. Um, and I used to talk about how this was the way it used to be. It's not that way anymore. The only reason we still have the Electoral College is it's been 100 years since the Electoral College result differed from the popular result. But I said with glib confidence, well, as soon as we get a case where somebody wins the electoral vote and loses the popular vote, well, the electoral college will be swept away within just a matter of months because everybody will realize how anachronistic it is. Well, needless to say, I was wrong about that. I underestimated the appeal of the electoral college for particular groups in, in politics today. And so I thoroughly revamped my view. I think the Electoral College is very much anachronistic. And it, I think, it's one of those institutions, and this is something I propose to my students. One way of assessing the value of an institution is, or a custom is, if the institution did not already exist, would anybody invent it today? And the answer to the Electoral College is no. It would never occur to anybody 150 years, 170 years after the embrace of democracy to think that electors somehow improve the selection of presidents. But that's one way of assessing the value of an institution. That's not the only way. The, the other way is, well, we got it, so what are we going to do with it? It's going to be very hard to change that system because to amend the Constitution requires a very high threshold. You've got to get you know, two-thirds of the of the both houses of Congress, and you have to get three-quarters of the states. And there are a lot more small states that have a lot to lose from abandoning the Electoral College, because Wyoming, for example, the state with the least number of, of people, is dramatically overrepresented in the Electoral College compared to the big states. So there are few big states, and the big states would be happy to get rid of the Electoral College, but the small states like to keep it because it means that they're more important than they would be otherwise. And there are more small states than there are big states. So it's going to take a lot to change it. Now, the argument for keeping it is that, well, if it were simply a straight vote of, of the popular, of the people, then who would ever campaign in New Hampshire? Who would ever care about Wyoming? Well, true enough, true enough. But I can say that having lived in California, and living in, and lived in Texas, well, California does get the attention of the candidates because California is in play. But Texas, this last week, Texas was in the news in a presidential campaign for a brief period against all expectations. Nobody thought the Democratic nomination process was going to go on this long. But, and so, in fact, at the precinct where I vote, there's an elementary school three blocks from my house. It happens to be the largest precinct in Travis County. And CNN was broadcasting from the steps of this particular elementary school. I can guarantee you that after 10 o'clock on Tuesday night, when Texas has this weird combination of a primary and caucuses, 
Um, as soon as the story was over for that day, that's the last we're going to see of CNN with respect to this presidential cycle. It's the last we're going to see of the candidates, except when they drop in maybe to raise money. But I've been living in Texas. I mean, the voters in New Hampshire and Wyoming fear being disenfranchised if we go to a straight line popular vote. I've been disenfranchised living in Texas because Texas has been reliably Republican. And so, you know, Travis County fancies itself the liberal island in the center of a conservative state. But everybody in Travis County is just wasting their votes because it's very clear that Texas is going to vote for the Republican candidate, regardless of who the Republican candidate is. So, the Electoral College is something that didn't already exist, would never be invented, but it's going to be really hard to get rid of for exactly these reasons. Yeah, please. Ms. Bill, you've been talking about the importance of timing for presidents and for his candidates. They have to have that sense of timing. If you don't mind putting your commentator hat on right sure. now, which, please assess the sense of timing with three major candidates right now, McCain, Clinton, and Obama. Sure, and I will, let me first answer that in terms of this calculation of vice presidents, because this gets into it. Because Hillary Clinton was asked last week, would she consider, or did she think that an Obama and Clinton on the same ticket would be viable? And she said, well, yeah, that, that might really be a possibility. And then she wanted to say, of course, I want to be at the top of the ticket. Um, and Obama, of course, wanted to be at the top of the ticket, too. But in terms of the calculation there, would Obama, suppose Clinton gets the nomination, would Obama say yes to an invitation to be the running mate? Suppose Obama gets the nomination. Would Clinton say yes? Well, here timing counts for a whole lot. Because I think you could make an argument that if Clinton wins the nomination and invites Obama, and this might well be a very smart move, because Obama clearly has what you could call the it factor in politics. And I've said that one of the reasons that we choose our presidents is they make us feel good or hopeful or something positive about ourselves and about our country. And Obama has that ability, especially with young people. My kids have gone crazy for Obama. And this, my students are crazy for Obama. And Obama, is, he's pulling voters, young voters, from the Republican side. Because people really respond to Obama's appeal to bring the country together. And I just saw a billboard from Obama where the the operative word was hope. And you vote for Obama and you can feel good about yourself, you can hope for the future and all this. So, it, now, Hillary Clinton does not inspire those kinds of emotions. She inspires a different set of emotions, and emotions are critical here. Um, you know, there's a question of, okay, experience versus an experience, judgment, and all that stuff. So, if, Ob if Clinton could talk Obama into joining the ticket, then it would make sense for her it could, she could hope to bring in a lot of this, especially youthful enthusiasm, and some of Obama's charisma would carry over her, because of course they always have at least one vice presidential debate, and Obama almost certainly would come across very well there, and he'd be out on the stump campaigning for the Democratic ticket, and he would simply say, all the things that I stood for when I was running for president, I still stand for, and we're going to work for them. And it would make sense for him, because win or lose. If the Democratic ticket wins in this year, then he becomes Vice President of the United States. And that's a lot better. And I'll, I don't think I'm going to steal from a, a future lecture. But, well here I'll just say one thing. Do you know what is absolutely unprecedented 
about the election of 2008. Now, we haven't actually chosen, finally, both nominees yet. But we do know something that is going to make this election different from every election in American history until now. That's right. The, the two nominees will be sitting senators. This has never been the case before. And maybe I will elaborate in one of the future lectures on exactly what this means in terms of how you campaign. But for Obama, being vice president of the United States is really a much better position if he wants to be president than being senator. Because the hardest problem about being a senator is that you have to vote on issues. Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson was running for president in 1820, well, he had been promoted to be president. People have been promoting Andrew Jackson to be president from basically the battle, day of the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. And they thought Andrew Jackson would be a great president. And Andrew Jackson initially sort of shied away from the idea, but eventually, when people whisper in your ear off and up, you could be president of the United States, it's really hard to say no. In fact, you can count on about one hand the number of people in American history who've been able to resist that call. William Sherman, who's probably the best example, William Sherman, at just if he'd just given the nod of his head, he could have been president two or three times during the 1870s or 1880s. He could have had the nomination, he would have won the election. Colin Powell, more recently, is somebody who probably could have had the Republican nomination in 1996. It was his for the asking, but he said no, apparently for personal reasons. Anyhow, when people say that, then you know, it really does it does make you think, well, okay, you could be president. But if you are a senator, oh, was I talking about Andrew Jackson? Andrew Jackson is being promoted for Senate, excuse me, for president. And then some of, this might seem weird, but some of his opponents in Tennessee, he did have, Jackson had enemies. Oh, I am going to talk about the importance of enemies. But Jackson had enemies in Tennessee. And a Tennessee senator resigned. And so the governor had to appoint a senator to fill the spot until there was going to be a special election. And some of Jackson's enemies suggested that he should be a senator. And Jackson, Jackson had been in the Senate very briefly before, early in the Senate, and he had quit in disgust after about six weeks because he realized that he just didn't have the patience and the personality to be one of a large group. Jackson wanted to leave. In fact, this was something that was said of Franklin Roosevelt. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected to the New York legislature in 1910, one of the Tammany Hall bosses was trying to assess this new Roosevelt. They had all known about Theodore Roosevelt. And one of the Tammany bosses came up, no, actually, excuse me, it wasn't one of the Tammany bosses, it was one of the Republicans who had known Theodore Roosevelt, came up and said, uh, now, you know what you're getting into with these Roosevelts? When they ride, they want to leave. And you put them on, they're going to want to be in charge. Anyway, so Jackson didn't want to be in the Senate again. But he couldn't figure out a way diplomatically of saying no. But he also understood that if he was in the Senate, he was going to have to vote on issues. He was going to have to vote on controversial topics like the tariff. And Jackson was in a position where at this point, he was all things to all people because nobody really knew what he stood for. And I would suggest that this is one of the attractions of, of Barack Obama. Because he, he doesn't have a track record, you can project on him everything that you wish about yourself and you wish about the country. If he stays in the Senate, 
he's going to lose that effect. John Edwards was smart. The last go-round after he ran for vice president to resign from the Senate because he knew that he was going to be up against this sort of thing. Anyway, this, by the way, is why senators never get elected president. They've only had two senators elected president. You know who they are? Kennedy. John Kennedy. Warren Harding, who was definitely not an advertisement for either a brilliant Senate career or a brilliant role in the White House. Anyway, so for Obama, the calculation is, yeah, vice president would be great. Because if the Democratic ticket loses this year, well, the blame is on Clinton. And her moment has passed, and his is, is coming on. If they win, okay, then he's vice president. He'll be vice president. He'll be on the ticket again in 2012. And again, win or lose in 2012, he's the heir apparent. It's a little bit more problematic for Hillary Clinton. I have a hunch that this is Hillary Clinton's best shot at things. Uh, because one of the problems that she's encountering is what various people are describing as the Clinton fatigue factor. It seems like we've had the Clintons around forever. And here she suffers from her connection to Bill Clinton. I mean, she benefited from it because that's how she got her name into national politics. But, you know, we've seen Clintons around for a long time, and if she doesn't get it this time around, I think that her, I think her star is faded. And it might not have fallen just far enough. She might still get the nomination. It's going to be a very close call. But if she doesn't get it now, it's just going to continue to fade. For McCain, this is definitely his best and almost certainly his last shot. He is going to suffer from the age factor uh, in the general campaign. And Republicans play patty cake when they're in their primary process. Republicans, most of them still adhere to Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment. And that is to say no evil of another Republican. And you know, people haven't been pressing McCain on that. You have to be careful pressing it because there are a lot of voters out there who are as old as John McCain, and they don't want to be told that they're over the hill. So what you do is you arrange for photo ops. Well, this is, this is what John Kennedy did implicitly against Dwight Eisenhower in 1960. I have to say implicitly because he wasn't running against Eisenhower. He was running against Richard Nixon. But the comparison was a new generation against the old generation. And despite the fact, and this is one of those ironies of history, despite the fact that John Kennedy in 1960 was probably in worse health than Dwight Eisenhower was. It's just we didn't know all of his health problems. But it was Kennedy who was arranging all of those touch football games at Hyannisport and all the vigorous physical activity. He didn't have to say, I'm this new generation. Oh, but he did. I, I can still remember the voice of Kennedy pronouncing the word Viga. And you know, Viga, this was going to be an important aspect of this new administration. And you can, you can bet that if Obama gets the nomination, then there are going to be all sorts of ways that the Democrats will be thinking, okay, how can we put Barack Obama out there? I don't know, on the ski zone. You have to be careful here. John Kerry realized windsurfing, no good. Uh, in the days of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, William Howard Taft, who was Roosevelt's anointed successor, Taft liked to play golf. And Roosevelt said, no, no, golf, no good. Golf was too patrician a support, uh, too patrician a support, uh, sport back in those days. So he told Taft to stay off the golf course. So you have to choose things. I'm, I don't know what the appropriate physical activity for Obama would be. Oops. But could be, oh, that's right, he plays basketball, right? That'd be perfect. Oh, my, yeah, that really would be good. And so, yeah, this is one of those cases where McCain can realize this is it. If he wins now, he wins. But if he doesn't, he doesn't. Somebody, now... 
Gleaves, you might know this, and some others you might remember. But I have this vague recollection. When Ronald Gray was running for president in 1980, and his age became an issue, that I don't remember Reagan himself or somebody associated with the campaign, and maybe I'm just dreaming this, but I was I have this recollection that somebody suggested, well, you think age is an issue, Reagan will probably be just a one-term president. Does, does that ring a bell with anybody else, or am I just hallucinating this? Okay, I mean, it, it's, you have to be very careful. You don't want to make any commitment. But, I mean, given what we know about Reagan's health in his second term, and the fact that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's not long after leaving the presidency, it's really clear that health should be an issue. It shouldn't be a disqualifier. There are vigorous people who are in their 90s. There's a retired Texas Supreme Court judge, whom I got to know in, in Texas, who I see walking around the, the lake in Austin. And he's, I guess, 93. And he's just as spry as can be. Uh, you know, and so it's not a disqualifier, but it's an issue. And, but of course, the, the Democrats are going to have to be very careful how they raise that, just as the Republicans, well, they are going to be tempted to play on the fact that there are probably still some voters who would hesitate to vote for a woman, and there are probably some voters who, for one reason or another, would hesitate to vote for an African American. So, how do you deal with those? These days, with the internet, one way to do it is you just have somebody slip something out on the blog and Matt Drudge picks it up and it can be as scurrilous as you want it to be. <laughs> one last comment on this. Is it is often commented that politics today, presidential politics today, is dirtier and lower than it, it used to be. No, no, not at all. If you go back to politics in the 1820s, 1820s for heaven's sakes, it was far nastier than politics today. I won't say that people were nastier in those days, but because there were no... You know, pocket video cams and telephones with cameras on it. And there are no tape recorders. People knew they could get away with saying all sorts of stuff to a particular audience, and they just not denied than they ever said it. They could put out propaganda that could never be traced back to its source. The politicking was so good in the campaign of 1828 that Rachel Jackson, Andrew Jackson's wife, suffered a nervous breakdown as a result of all the nasty things that were said about Rachel Jackson. In fact, she suffered not only a nervous breakdown, she suffered a physical breakdown. She died under the strain of this just after Jackson was elected and before Jackson could be inaugurated. And Andrew Jackson was so distraught at the loss of his wife of 35 years that he almost didn't go to Washington. He almost didn't go to the inaugurated. In fact, he threw himself down on the ground beside her grave in January rain. And he had to be picked up by his friends and sort of cleaned off. And the only way he could be talked into going to Washington was by playing on his belief that his political enemy had killed Rachel. And he wasn't going to let them have the last word. He was going to go to Washington to deal with that. Uh, thanks very much. Is there some time to end? Okay. Yes, thank you very much.